This podcast was recorded on Friday, November 20th at 10.28 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. A lot of times as politicians, we're not sure what we're doing. We have to a lot of times have people around us that will say, oh, you're going too far on this or this or that. means for how he'll run. Canada's Conservative Party gets a retooling with a new leader. Erin O'Toole is on a mission. The new Conservative leader wants to be the next Prime Minister, and to do that, he needs to find a lot of new voters. Voters who aren't in Alberta or Saskatchewan. His outreach started day one and has only gotten broader. I want more, more women, more cultural communities, uh, more union members, more students looking at the Conservative Party. Again, we want to build a big tent. O'Toole told nationalist Quebecers he wants to include them in his coalition too. Les Québécois nationalists ont une place importante dans le Parti conservateur. In fact, he told Radio-Canada his party plans to win 30 Quebec seats in the next election. They currently have 10. In chasing francophone Quebecers and suburban soccer moms, he's also tried to put a key issue to bed abortion. I won the leadership of the Conservative Party as a pro-choice Conservative MP. I think he has, uh, he certainly has more of a social liberal orientation personally. The Conservative leader is also using new language, perhaps to appeal to union members. We need policies that build solidarity, not just wealth. Language more typically found coming from the NDP or liberal politicians. I want to tell you that everything is not okay. Real wages have not risen in Canada since the 1970s. Remember when rising inequality was all Justin Trudeau could talk about? It means it's become harder and harder to get ahead to stability and security. Wealthy Canadians were getting richer. The middle class was being hollowed out. It was a common refrain from the Liberal leader before he became Prime Minister, and it's a theme that worked for Trudeau in 2015 and Donald Trump in 2016, albeit with a slightly different tack. And that's when O'Toole is also using. Middle class Canada has been betrayed by the elites on every level. But in chasing these new voters, could O'Toole extend his tent pegs too far and cause his coalition to collapse? His main objective will be to steal center-left votes from the Liberals, not to advocate for real conservative principles or policies. I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. Today on the show, we look back at Aaron O'Toole's first 100 days as conservative leader. Yes, they're not exactly up yet, but that benchmark will be passed when this podcast next comes out. So join me for a packed show on the new conservative leader and his first three months in office. Jenny Byrne, Stephen Harper's former campaign manager, joins another former Harper advisor, Dennis Matthews, for a look back and a look ahead. We'll also hear from Advocate Data's David Coletto, Unifor's Jerry Dias, small business advocate Catherine Swift, Ontario Regional Chief Roseanne Archibald, Ontario MP Karen Vecchio, Eric Wen of the Chinese Canadian Conservative Association, Jack Fonseca of Campaign Life Coalition, and Mustafa Farouk from the National Council of Canadian Muslims. Lots to talk about. <laughs> Stick around. Uh, we, we finished the survey in early to mid-November, and we found that the Liberals have opened up an eight-point lead um, when it comes to vote intention over the Conservatives. They're at 38 nationally. Conservatives are at 30. The NDP is actually down a little bit to 15. And, you know, below the surface, it, it points to a really healthy uh, position for the Liberals. They're ahead in British Columbia. They're, they're well ahead in Ontario. Um, they're holding their own in Quebec. They've got a big lead in Atlantic Canada. So all that points to... Um, a real improvement, actually, over the last few weeks for the Liberals. My name is David Coletto. I'm chief executive at polling firm Abacus Data. 
I asked David to give us a lay of the political landscape and the challenges facing the new conservative leader. The conservatives have really struggled since the election, really, in a very tight, narrow band between 30 and 33 percent. They haven't been able to break out. I think as the second wave has taken effect, people seemingly are feeling a little bit better about Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals, and, and that's giving them a little bit of a lift. One of the things we often notice is a small bump when there's a new party leader. Did we notice that with Aaron O'Toole? We really didn't, actually. Um, uh, there was a little bit of, within the first few days, or first few weeks of him becoming leader this summer, we saw you know, a, a, a little bit of a, a, an increase in those open to voting conservative. We saw his own personal numbers improve. But, you know, that was at a moment when I think Aaron O'Toole got more attention and more coverage than he will probably get until the next election. And although his personal numbers are creeping up in terms of the of people know getting to know him, slightly more people have a negative view of Aaron O'Toole today than a positive one, but most people don't really know who he is. That's interesting for somebody who didn't have much of a national profile, that the default opinion would be negative. Well, I, I think it, it shows the brand challenges the Conservative Party has generally, right? That that um, there are some Canadians out there who would probably think poorly of any Conservative leader, regardless of who it was, regardless of how hard they he or she worked to change that opinion. You know, he's, it's not like in Ontario, uh, where for a very long time after he was elected, Doug Ford was deeply unpopular, uh, deeply polarizing. There's a lot of federal liberal voters who actually think quite highly of Doug Ford. That hasn't happened for Aaron O'Toole yet. Um, and it's, you know, it's not likely to happen overnight. It, it needs time. And, and uh, he hasn't been able to do that quite yet. Uh, let's talk about the challenges the party faces. It's the challenge every party faces, um, but one that the conservatives, I think, have, have struggled with. Um, in our most recent survey, only 44% of Canadians said they'd be open or would consider voting conservative, right? And so if we believe that for the, a conservative party to win a majority government in Canada, they got to get close to 40% of the vote, that doesn't leave much room uh, in terms of a conversion rate. You basically have to convert everyone who's open to voting for you for actually to vote for you and make sure that it's distributed you know, evenly enough that you can win seats everywhere, which was the problem for the Conservatives in the last election. They won more votes than the Liberals, but it was heavily concentrated in Alberta um, and in rural parts of the country outside of the big cities. In contrast, the Liberals right now are at 58% of Canadians open to voting for them. So they have a 14 percentage point lead. Now, that's maybe a little bit high for the Liberals than it has been over the last few years because of the pandemic right now and how people are feeling. But job number one for Aaron O'Toole, and I think you said this, he knows this, um, is to grow that accessible pool of voters. He doesn't need to convince people right now, today, that they are conservative voters, that they are going to vote conservative. But he needs to have them consider the party, right? It's I always think of voting, I use the analogy of like going to a restaurant, right, and, and looking at the menu. And the menu doesn't change, um, but my willingness to consider eating or choosing certain items on that menu might might change depending on what mood I'm in. Right now, there's a lot of Canadians who still say, I don't see myself ever voting conservative. And um, I think that's something that he has to work on. And I think he understands that he has to find a way to expand the party's um, tent. And if I think of some groups that, that are in particular need of, of maybe some tender love and care, it would be um, Quebec, um, I think younger Canadians and and those that uh, you know have have voted conservative in the past, those living in suburban regions, middle class voters that care about climate change, that care about public services, it, it's a very hard thing for I think the Conservative Party to to do. But it's something Aaron O'Toole needs to find a way to to develop and 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 appeal to those 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 specific voters. Well, I think the risk and it's the risk that conservative parties in other jurisdictions. And, and I, I use the Conservative Party in the UK a little bit as an example, that as they tried to modernize and it brought in their base, they opened up um, the right flank to someone else coming in and, and appealing to those voters. In the UK, it was about immigration, it was about identity, it was about Brexit. And so the UKIP party that, that really pushed for Brexit 
kind of came in and started eating away at its right flank. Although there isn't an, a very active competitor to the conservatives on the right, there's the Maverick Party, there's the Wexit movement, there's, there's Max Bernier still, even though, you know, he got two and a half percent, I think, in the last by-election. That's, that's not anywhere close to winning, but it's still, if you're losing elections on the margins, that's enough to start losing some seats. Aaron O'Toole has to be, I think, aware of that. And that is the perennial challenge that conservative party faces is it's, it's um, you know, the liberals can kind of morph into whatever they want to be. The conservatives always have to, to speak to its base because it, it's what funds it. It's what um, keeps the, the machine running. And it is the energy in the party. And so if you're, you're getting more and more activists feeling that it's losing its conservatism, its, its sort of movement uh, purpose, that, that, that's, a risky, that's a risky place to be. On the other hand, you cannot win if you only speak to that group. David Coletto is the CEO of Abacus Data. So who is Aaron O'Toole reaching out to? And is this new attention genuine? His first outreach came in the middle of the night during his acceptance speech in Ottawa. Whether you're black, white, brown, or from any race or creed, whether you're LGBT or straight, whether you're an indigenous Canadian or have joined the Canadian family three weeks ago or three generations ago, whether you're doing well or barely getting by, whether you worship on Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, or not at all, you are an important part of Canada and you have a home in the Conservative Party of Canada. O'Toole used his first question in question period to address Indigenous issues. Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister's record when it comes to reconciliation is the same as his record in general. All talk and no action. Big announcements, zero follow-through. Indigenous communities need the Prime Minister to roll up his sleeves and get down to work. He joined Assembly of First Nations National Chief Perry Bellegarde's podcast to say he hoped to work in partnership with Indigenous Canadians. Personally, I think that reconciliation is participation in the economy to the best extent possible. It's collaboration, it's uh, partnership. And so I think this is going to be a focus for me and I, I really think it plays well to the free market principles of the Conservative Party as well. And of course, he's spoken about having a deep affection for union members and the union's role in helping ensure good middle-class jobs. So can he be believed? No, no, it's like, look, he, he ran on a campaign. He, he gets the backing of the, the J.C. Kenneys of the world, the, you know, the real blue Tories. You know, he ran on this conservative platform. And now all of a sudden, he's a closet socialist. Like, give me a break. Like, nobody's going to buy it. My name is Jerry Dias. I'm the national president of Unifor. And I am in Toronto right now. And so happy to be here with you this morning. I wanted to ask you what you make of Aaron O'Toole's newfound admiration for private sector unions. Yeah, you always have to look at people's past decisions. He's really working on the premise that people don't pay attention or haven't watched his voting record. So it's almost as if he's saying to all of us, look, everything that I have said, everything that I have done for all these years was all nonsense. I'm a new man today. And I'm looking at things differently. So he really has either taken us as fools or he is a completely changed individual. And I just don't buy it. It's like, I just don't buy the argument at all. He frames it in a very personal way. Like it feels like it comes from someplace deeply rooted, talking about growing in a GM town, still driving a Buick, talking about the importance of union membership and how that created better jobs for everybody and a sense of community. You know, that sounds wonderful, and I just wish that he was genuine. But look at, his, look at his history. I mean, he was Harper's cheerleader during two of the worst anti-union bills ever put forward by the federal government, 377 and 525. 525 really went at the crux of union organizing. So you can't say and talk about the importance of unions, yet do everything possible to weaken them and to make sure that organizing new members becomes nearly impossible. And then when he talks about trade deals and, you know, the foundation for strong union jobs in the auto industry, 
Look, he was the parliamentary secretary under trade when he did the worst trade deals Canada has ever seen. Like on the auto industry alone, he was the parliamentary secretary when they did the Korea deal. At the time of the Korea deal, we had a $2.8 billion deficit in auto with Korea. Today, it's almost $4 billion. That's just in six years. Yet here he was in the House talking about what an incredible deal it was for the Canadian auto industry. Look, it's been a disaster. And so he should at least come clean. He should say, listen, I screwed up. I made it worse for the auto industry. I made it absolutely difficult for Canadian auto industry to survive. Look, a lot of the companies, I deal with them all, say, you know, it's a, it's a, the issue for them becomes, should I invest in Canada or just import vehicles into Canada because the Conservatives made it so easy? And I really love his tough on China talk, which is such nonsense because he was the guy that did FIPA, the deal with China that really gave them the right to sue Canada. In other words, he opened the door, said to Chinese investors, look, you can invest in a major way in our major infrastructure, in our major industries, in oil and energy. And if in fact we try to introduce any buy in Canada measures, if we try to introduce more government procurement, you can sue us. So look, he's, he's either, I'm telling you, he's either like had this new epiphany or he's a liar. And the reality is I think he's a liar. You know, the federal PC party is notorious for uh, not being friendly to First Nations. And I was certainly hopeful when I heard his platform. Uh, but again, as I said, I haven't heard a lot since then. Hi, everyone. I am Ontario Regional Chief Roseanne Archibald, and today I'm in Toronto. Economics is only one part of a larger picture, and I think that this is the great blind spot of conservatives, is they think that money and the creation of economy is the main way to solve social problems, and that's just not true. <laughs> you know, it requires specific programs and services, especially for First Nations who have been at a great disadvantage economically, socially, health-wise for hundreds of years, really. And so it requires a significant investment in a number of areas. I would personally like to have a conversation with him for sure, uh, just to talk about what's really important for First Nations in Ontario. I did tweet out through my social media congratulating him, but I haven't really heard much about him, to tell you the truth. One of the first, I think it may actually have been the very first thing Aaron O'Toole said in the House of Commons after he came back from um, his, uh, his quarantine for COVID, was he let off his first question as Conservative Party leader, by pressing the Liberal government to do more to advance reconciliation with Indigenous people. Did that mean anything? And has there been follow through in the last 100 days to build on that? I, I'm just going to be honest, I don't follow Aaron O'Toole, because I, I'm not really seeing that like the fact that he came in and asked the question I'm not seeing that on a regular basis and and it's probably because I'm not following him closely I, I know this interview is about him but he does have some MPs in his party who are very active as well clearly Eric Malello to me is uh, a positive voice in parliament so is it fair to say then that while you may not have heard that much about Aaron O'Toole on the Indigenous file in the last 100 days, that at least you feel like Indigenous issues are being somewhat represented in the House of Commons by some of his MPs? Well, only Eric Malello. <laughs> He's the only one that I've really, I've really seen do that. And, you know, I, for me... What an opposition party does in their first, first 100 days is, to me, not as important as what they will do if they actually become the governing party. Those first 100 days really count. It's been those kinds of dog whistles, that kind of approach, that makes you know Mr. O'Toole's first 100 days a bit of a mixed bag. My name is Mustafa Farouk, and I am the CEO of the National Council of Canadian Muslims. 
and I'm calling from Ottawa. It's been interesting to see Mr. O'Toole strike a tone or attempt to strike a tone that is uh, perhaps somewhat more conciliatory towards uh, diverse communities, including towards members of the Muslim community, uh, while simultaneously, uh, you know, not always, uh, I think, from our perspective, uh, meeting the mark of where any political leader in Canada should be. Uh, so to put that into context, or, you know, on the first day of his electoral victory, uh, Mr. O'Toole, you know, uh, very clearly noted that his party would represent a whole diversity of the range of Canadians, including those who, whether they prayed on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, which many folks inside the Muslim community saw as a kind of clear repudiation of, you know, some of the past conservative policies, which seemed to very heavily demonize uh, or attempt to demonize the Canadian Muslim community, whether it was Harper's Niqab ban or the Barbaric Cultural Practices Hotline. This attempt to very consciously attempt to swerve away and welcome folks who do, who do pray on Friday, i.e. the Muslim, you know, which seemed to us, you know, be an overture towards the, the Canadian Muslim community, you know, was, was one that was, I think, widely welcomed. And I think also uh, Mr. O'Toole has uh, attempted to do a lot more outreach within, you know, diverse communities in the 905, uh, whether it's attending, you know, in the pre-COVID era, attending mosques or things like that. And now, uh, you know, doing a lot of Zoom sessions and virtual gatherings with folks of diverse cultural and religious backgrounds. Those have been positives. But there are still a lot of things that, you know, we, we think are deeply problematic. Mr. O'Toole's position on Bill 21, which is the religious symbols ban in Quebec, which means that if you wear a kippah or a turban or a hijab in Quebec right now, you can't become a teacher, you can't become a prosecutor, you can't become a police officer. And uh, Mr. O'Toole has initially sort of seemed to indicate that he was supportive of Bill 21 in in, uh, in, a, in an interview he did in French, and then clarified to say that he was, you know, quote unquote, personally opposed. Uh, while we appreciate this clarification, um, that, you know, he felt that he was personally opposed to Bill 21, we don't think it's possible to argue that you are taking any definitive stance on religious freedom, freedom in general, defending our constitutional freedoms, without going beyond a personal opposition to one of the largest attacks on civil liberties in a generation in Canada. It's also been a little disappointing, more than a little disappointing, to see a, a refusal to you know, think about the concept of systemic racism. And it's also been disappointing to see some overtures to an old Harperish discourse um, in talking about the dangers of, you know, Islamist jihadists in Canada, which seemed somewhat out of place and really spending, you know, far too long talking about freedom of speech issues that don't really seem to have a whole lot to do with the Canadian context, especially without defending or, or speaking about Bill 21. Those were the voices of Mustafa Farouk, the CEO of the National Council of Canadian Muslims, Ontario Regional Chief Roseanne Archibald, and Unifor National President Jerry Dias. Two issues plagued former Conservative leader Andrew Scheer last year, who could not quite get his party over the finish line. His position on gay marriage and on abortion. O'Toole has tried to put that issue aside. Has he been successful? Here are two other perspectives on Aaron O'Toole's first 100 days. I am starving this morning, and I just needed something to eat. So just go with toast with jam. I ran out of bagels, so I'm on toast with jam. Karen Vecchio, I am from Elba Middlesex, London, the MP, Deputy um, House Leader, as well as uh, calling from St. Thomas, Ontario today. I was one of those who supported Peter McKay, and, and in 2017, I did support Aaron O'Toole. You know, we are a big tent party, and it's hard for people to understand what a big tent party really is, but in our party, we we have people who are fiscal conservatives. We have people that are social conservatives. We have people that are progressive conservatives. I like to define myself as a purple Tory, which, you know, people talk about different things. Um, we don't really like those labels, red Tory, this Tory. But I look at myself that I think fiscally, 
if I, I am totally blue from head to toe and you paint me all, all blue, this is what you get. And with fiscal responsibility, that's when we have really strong social programs um, that we can help Canadians that are in need, who, who need a hand up at a time, if you have a strong economic engine. And that is where my philosophy on being a conservative is. I always say if, if the economic, if the supports are there, let's put it together into social programs. But I don't believe that creating social programs creates a stronger economic engine. So I think what we have with Aaron is a very blank slate, um, as somebody who's very open and determined to make sure that he keeps Canada united. We have seen in the last few years very, very divisive. Um, I know I am a very pro-choice woman as well. And because I'm labeled as a conservative, I get pushed back because I'm a conservative and how can I be pro-choice? And what we see with, with Aaron is he does allow us to speak openly um, and, and not that Andrew did. And I feel really bad the way I'm saying this, but he see, he allows us to speak openly. He allows us to discuss frankly. And then in the public, I think most people understand this is who Aaron O'Toole is and he's not being there isn't an image that has already been determined of what he is. And we saw that with Andrew Scheer. People knew that he was pro-life. People knew certain things about him. So instead of saying, okay, well, this is what it is, we saw something explode where they determined it was bigger and faster and he was anti this and that. Yes, of course, he was a very religious man, and that's okay. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That is who he is, and his principles were based on that. That was his moral code, and that's okay. And I think the thing is, people didn't believe that he would be able to put that aside as a leader amongst the caucus. With 121 of us, there are going to be some people that are, are their, their footholdings are maybe with religious values. I have some religious values as well. It's all the way that we look at it. Aaron, um, we don't have that open issue here because, you know, uh, everybody has seen what Aaron is. Everybody sees that he's extremely open. He's, he's willing to talk. And so I think the thing is, it's very difficult to find Aaron in a, in a position that he doesn't feel comfortable. He is a gentleman. He is. He definitely brings the work that he has done in the Canadian Armed Forces to work. Uh, and it's a really amazing because you you see the way that he listens the protocols that he puts in place and it's a very I guess the best word for him is respectful and that's what we really need is respectful for different beliefs uh, respectful to allow people to voice their opinions and and that's what we get with Aaron and it's really important for our caucus to remain united to have a, a person who has um, two open ears and willing to listen a lot of times as politicians, we're not sure what we're doing. We have to ha a lot of times have people around us that will say, oh, you're going too far on this or this or that. I find with Aaron, he has a real internal gauge. He knows when to fire. He knows when not to fire. You know, that, that balanced approach, that knowing that when you're going, if you're going into battle, you want someone like Aaron O'Toole to lead you. And that's because I think he always looks forward, but always looks behind as well to make sure that we're not... Uh, not making the mistakes from the past. Nice background. Yeah, thank you. I was I didn't mean to have it on. Actually, I was just playing around to see. I, I haven't really tried the Skype background, so I just clicked on one, and uh, I didn't think it stuck. <laughs> you look like you're in a manufacturing manufacturer of robots. Yes, yes, yes. I love science fiction. So my name is Jack Fonseca. I'm the political operations director with Campaign Life Coalition out of. Uh, uh, our headquarters out of uh, Hamilton, Ontario, and um, I am involved in uh, all things politics and elections with respect to pro-life and pro-family issues. One of the reasons we know Aaron O'Toole won was because he got down-ballot support from Leslin Lewis and Derek Sloan. In Aaron O'Toole's first 100 days, has there been anything that has surprised you uh, from the new Conservative leader? Um, well, you know, I, I, I shouldn't say I'm too surprised. Uh, I didn't uh, hold up too much hope for him, but maybe if I could start with the positives first and then uh, move on to the things uh, over the past 100 days um, that are I would put in the negative column. So uh, I guess in, in the positive, I would say that he has largely kept his promise to allow free votes on moral issues, uh, the first uh, test of which was uh, Bill uh, C7 uh, to expand euthanasia in Canada. Uh, that's a, a liberal government bill. And uh, C6, the uh, so-called conservative, th uh, or, sorry, conversion therapy ban 
um, by the liberals again. So he has allowed uh, free votes on those. And I should point out on Bill C-6, it's a total lie to call it a conversion therapy uh, uh, bill. What, what it's doing is uh, banning um, voluntary talk therapy uh, between a, a licensed therapist and their client, uh, as well as uh, a spiritual counseling between a, a pastor or a priest and, and their parishioners or people who come to them for spiritual help, as well as uh, uh, normal parental guidance uh, between parents and their children. Who might be sexually confused for instance so so these are moral issues and uh, so on the first two bills he's allowed a free vote so i i put that in the in the uh, good column uh, for aaron overall it's more negative i would say as an assessment of his uh, first 100 days he's been dragging uh, it seems to me he's trying to drag the party to the left um uh, you know, in all areas, not not only on, on moral issues by identifying himself as uh, a supporter of abortion and a supporter of banning conversion therapy and a, a supporter of uh, transgender ideology and all that kind of stuff. But e even on economic issues, I mean, it's not our issues per se, but, you know, he's uh, buying into spending that would have been unheard of under any other uh, conservative leader in the past. Uh, and it's just not conservative at all. The first thing that he did that was a big strike against Aaron O'Toole was not putting Derek Sloan in his shadow cabinet and not giving him a senior critic position. That was a big, big blunder on the part of Aaron O'Toole uh, that um, is going to cost him support among social conservatives who gave him the the leadership crown that he's wearing now. Um, and, and to remind your listeners uh, who perhaps aren't aware of it, um, Campaign Life Coalition alone, as an organization, recruited more than 26,000 memberships uh, from pro-life, pro-family uh, uh, people who joined the party and uh, to vote in the in the leadership race. And without those, uh, Aaron O'Toole would not be leader. It would have been smart politics, smart politics to keep his base happy and motivated and impressed with his leadership to have put Derek Sloan in, in the shadow cabinet. And when the liberal media attacked, just tell them all to go to hell. Um, uh, yeah, no offense, Althea. But, uh, um, you know, he's got to think of his base first, uh, not the media. And he hasn't done that. I want to ask you about the base. Because clearly the Conservative Party has a problem. It needs to expand its base uh, in order to get more votes, in order to form government. How can the party do that? without sacrificing its core membership? Well, I think it's a false dichotomy. I think this is a media fabrication that uh, you have to become more leftist and more liberal in order to win over more Canadians. I, I don't think that's true. I think uh, what conservatives need to do is actually be more socially conservative. You look at, uh, you know, Doug Ford. Uh, Doug Ford, for example, when he ran for, uh, uh, for leader of the party and then for premier, he won with a massive landslide. And you look at some of the policies he promised. You know, Doug Ford is no longer he's abandoned every one of those promises, mind you. He's, he's become very socially liberal himself now. Uh, but Doug Ford uh, ran on repealing the radical sex education curriculum of Kathleen Wynne. He uh, he uh, uh, stated and defended very publicly uh, and supported the idea of uh, parental consent for for abortions for minor children. He uh, uh, supported the idea of repealing the liberal government's abortion bubble zone censorship law that prohibits uh, pro-life expression on public uh, taxpayer-owned sidewalks uh, within 150 meters of, of uh, uh, abortion facilities. And I'll give you another example. When Stephen Harper, in his first term, when he won his first minority government, um, it was a much more socially conservative position that he took. He, he ran the first time he was successful on the promise of having a new vote on the definition of marriage. And he was awarded. The liberals were punished for redefining marriage back then. And the conservatives were rewarded for it. And the Catholic vote and the ethnic minority vote uh, swung over to the conservatives in dramatic fashion, uh, based largely on that promise. And then he won a larger second term minority uh, because, in part, I believe, because he had a lot of pro-life MPs who were putting forward private members' bills. What happened? He won a majority next. Okay? So then what happened? 
once Stephen Harper had his majority, he then started to clamp down, and we saw him uh, shut down Stephen Woodworth, the former MP for Kitchener Center at the time, his uh, pro-life uh, private members motion, uh, motion 312. Stephen Harper uh, spoke against it. Stephen Harper shut down uh, Mark Wara, the, the, the late uh, MP from BC, uh, the pro-life MP Mark Wara. He shut down his, his uh, motion 404 to condemn sex-selective abortion. What happened? They lost. The Conservatives lost the next election. So I think there's no evidence to support the media fiction, the liberal media fiction, that Conservatives have to become more liberal in order to win and to attract new voters. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that when you appeal to values voters, you win. And I've given you some of that evidence. So one of the things that strikes me, um, the last Conservative convention uh, in Halifax, I believe it was, sometimes you know, we in the media get accused of overplaying the role of social conservatives in the party, but clearly what that convention showed everybody was that uh, you're probably more influential and powerful than we have even given uh, groups like yours credit. At some point, do you not feel like the party leadership is just taking you guys for granted? Like, why are you continue to be involved in a party that almost always tells you it is not interested in your voice. Well, I mean, it, it's the, I, I think in, in part, it's because of the simple principle that it's our party. It's not the leader's party. The, the leader is one man or one woman, as the case may be. And uh, it's not, they don't own the party. The party belongs to the grassroots membership of the, uh, uh, of the conservative party. And uh, that the fact of the matter is the, the, the majority of that grassroots membership, that grassroots base, uh, are social conservatives. And, uh, you know, our estimate is uh, it's as high as 70 percent uh, of the conservative party base uh, are social conservatives. So why should we leave? Oh, I'm not suggesting that you should leave. I'm just wondering how you can keep pushing an agenda forward that the party leadership signals repeatedly and routinely that it is not interested in pursuing. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, our, our uh, as an organization, Campaign Life Coalition, you know, our, our goal is to make sure that uh, or to, to try to uh, elect uh, a social conservative party leader that won't be an obstacle, that won't uh, try to shut us down, at the very least will be fair and uh, and allow free votes and, and allow the uh, uh, the grassroots to to decide what their policies are. Well, Jack Fonseca, you and I don't agree on a whole bunch of things, but I really appreciate your point of view, and I always enjoy our chats. Thank All you. right, me too. Thanks for having <laughs> me on. Jack Fonseca is the political operations director with Campaign Life Coalition, an advocacy group for what they call pro-life issues. Before that, you heard from Conservative MP Karen Vecchio from the Ontario riding of Elgin, Middlesex, London. We'll be back with our informed panel of conservative pundits, Jenny Byrne and Dennis Matthews. Aaron O'Toole's off to a, a really positive start, but you know it's 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 hard to to point a finger at. Okay, well. He's changed the game here. I think he's in the process of, of changing the game, and let's give him some time here. It's, it's, it's 100 days. But, you know, he's got to find a way to, to shake up the system a bit because there's just not enough voters uh, in his world right now. Great. My name is Dennis Matthews, uh, formerly of the uh, Stephen Harper PMO and a number of uh, campaign, as campaigns over the years on the advertising and, and marketing side of things. Uh, today, I'm here in Toronto. I'm Vice President of Marketing and Communications at Enterprise Canada. Or a strategic communications firm here. My name is Jenny Byrne. I'm former national campaign director for Stephen Harper. I also was uh, deputy chief of staff uh, in the prime minister's office. Uh, most recently, I was the principal secretary to uh, to Doug Ford, and now I'm the CEO of Jenny Byrne and Associates. Thank you very much for joining me, both of you. I really appreciate it. Um, I wanted to start off by asking you what you think Erin O'Toole needed to do in those first 100 days. Well, I think I think this week has shown conservatives why uh, 
Andrew Shear needed to step down as leader and uh, someone else selected uh, more than ever. I think that Aaron has uh, built the foundation to be successful. I think that he's picked a very good shadow cabinet. Uh, I think the camp they've they've put uh, rules in place for uh, nominations, which from a logistical point of view is going to be very important because, of course, there could be an election at at any time. Uh, you know, my guess is probably sometime in the spring. So I think from a logistical point of view, he has done a very good job uh, in his first 100 days as leader. The biggest thing in the first 100 days was sort of pressing the reset button. He needed to get he needed to get the Conservative Party off to a, a fresh start uh, this fall, and you know I think by by that measure he definitely did it. There's a you know you sort of feel a positive feeling towards the, the momentum the party's got. He had to get a reset on a number of items. I think in terms of some of the staff items that that Jenny was talking about, but also just you know, finding a way to to get some positive energy behind the Conservative Party when you go through a loss and and the struggles that. Uh, Andrew Shear had over the last sort of number of months. Just just that reset was required, and and I think by that measure he he sort of checked that box. He has spent a lot of time introducing himself to people. Every conservative mm-hmm. I've spoken to, like on the record, uh, clearly has been given some talking points to talk about Aaron's military record. Like it's being snuck in in comments that have nothing to do with his experience. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but it's obviously something that needed to be done because most Canadians had no idea who he was. You know, I, I think if you take one one thing from this pandemic, it sort of robbed Aaron O'Toole from the traditional, uh, hey, there's a new leader out here, uh, get to know you, because the, the COVID environment is just so is so crowded. And having a consistent message, a consistent story about the leader and, and putting it on repeat out there, I think it's it's really smart. And and if I was them, I would keep doing it for, for the next year or two or, or however long it takes to get into an election, because, you know, most games don't follow this stuff that closely. And it's entirely possible six months from now, somebody hears about Aaron O'Toole for the first time. So don't assume people have a, a solid introduction to him at any point here. I was raised in a Gen- General Motors cl- middle-class family in a neighborhood where everyone looked out for one another. We were taught to have each other's backs and to help out. My entire life, I've tried to serve Canada and its people in uniform, as a volunteer, and as a member of parliament. If you remember Stephen Harper, uh, uh, it was a big challenge for us in terms of people not knowing who Stephen Harper was uh, when he was elected, even though he had been the Canadian Alliance leader, but when he was elected in 2004 as leader of the Conservative Party, uh, there was a, a very large effort, as Dennis knows, to introduce him to Canadians. And that really, uh, it went through the 2004 election, right through that minority parliament, right into uh, the campaign that we ran, the, the, the 2005 to 2006 campaign. One of the things I thought was really interesting in um, Aaron O'Toole's first few days was that the Liberals clearly tried to give him uh, a wedge issue and a stinking bomb with the conversion therapy bill. And in some ways, they were forced to with the medically assisted in assistance in dying bill, uh, the update to um, the court's decision. But um, perhaps this was a blessing for Aaron O'Toole because he seems to have managed that issue quite successfully. Mm-hmm. You know, these things, and it's it's so funny to watch Ottawa where these things become these gigantic, either they're purity tests or everybody has to go a certain way and there's all sorts of drama on votes. And, and that's actually a manufactured concept. It doesn't actually have to exist unless you allow it to exist. And and I, you know, I often laugh thinking to myself, it's like, you know, there's, there's cheese in the trap and it's like there's this feeling of, well, but I'm kind of hungry and maybe I can nibble at it and, and won't get bit. And you sort of feel like with with O'Toole, he you know, you recognize these are both serious issues, but there's also some serious politics at play here and and not creating a high drama moment where everybody had to vote a certain way. Uh, I think it was actually pretty smart because you you allow a few of your caucus members, if, if they so feel they need to, to vote a certain way. It's not a test of your leadership unless you set it up as some sort of test of your leadership. Another thing that we've noticed is Erin um, O'Toole's outreach to different groups. Um, I was I'm actually shocked is probably the word uh, when listening to his um, Canadian Club of Toronto speech, not about the outreach to private sector unions, but that he mentioned that he even wanted teachers as part of the conservative tent. Um, what are what's behind the strategy and what are the potential risks that come with it? I think, if, you know, first and foremost, it's, it's a smart strategy to take a look at the electorate and look at groups that aren't currently voting for you that maybe the other side is taking for granted and find a way to bring them into your tent. You were at a point now where there's there's a uh, a high floor for the party. There's a, there's 30% of the country that's going to vote conservative almost no matter what, but it's not obvious, you know, who the additions are on that. 
and the conservatives need more people to, to vote for them. I, they need a majority uh, in an election to have a shot at governing at this point, just the way the other parties are, are shaking out. So taking a look at, at whether it's union members or, or sort of the working class, you've seen some evidence in the states, you've seen some evidence in Doug Ford's electoral coalition that these uh, in the UK, you, so you've seen some signals that this this working class group is, is more accessible to the conservative party than it's been before. But I hope for, for the team around O'Toole, they take that learnings from that and sort of apply it to a bunch of other groups because, you know, that in of itself is not going to be enough. There's no silver bullets here. But if you can find a way to add, you know, three or four different groups that don't traditionally vote conservative into your fold, you know, that's a path to victory. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think that the challenge in terms of the unions and and so I think that uh, private sector union members and I think teachers for the most part uh, do vote conservative um, uh, or have at least in the past. They obviously did for Doug Ford here in Ontario. They obviously did for Harper in 2011. But I think the challenge is, is what exactly does this mean? So there's there's a difference between appealing to uh, people that that fall into private sector uh, unions probably back if we go back 15 years, uh, Dennis would have been calling them the Dougie vote um, uh, in terms of uh, p- p- some some people that didn't vote. But I, I think the challenge is is that um, you know praising uh, people like the, the heads of unions is much different, and so kind of standing shoulder to shoulder with Jerry Diaz does add uh, does leave some conservatives with a bad taste in their mouth. So if if there is there is a difference. So I think the issue he has right now is how are you going to appeal to the union members? And if that's not what they have in their mind, what exactly are they doing? Like what exactly then, if it's not to go after the union members, what exactly is his plan uh, in terms of private sector unions? The, the word union and and you know standing with union leaders and other things, I think is is a little bit of a uh, it's it's the spicy part that makes it interesting. It's partly why I think it's gotten some media attention. But the the underlying piece of it, this sort of everyday working people and, and their families as a, as going after a, a voter block, I think it's what what it's what it's smart is it is it sort of positions you in a in a in a way that you know you're for the the people who are working, the people who are making this country uh, come together. And if you take a look at at COVID and and what's happened and how it's shaken things up, I mean it's it's revealed some genuine cracks in society. You take a look at. Uh, nobody here would have uh, said a year ago, wow, somebody who works at a grocery store is, is an essential worker. And, you know, yet here we are. And their experience through this pandemic, through lockdowns, through everything we've been through, is a heck of a lot different than somebody who's, you know, working at a, at a bank on Bay Street. And I think there's some fault lines that are going to be appearing over uh, over the winter and if we enter into a spring election on people who just experienced the last year differently, differently economically and, and whatnot. And I think there's some opportunities there in in non-traditional voters who are a part of that you know real working class who are going to be looking at the political system and and judging it differently than somebody who is sort of able to you know zoom from home all day it's it's a a fault line that's emerging and i think if the conservatives can find a way to be for the working class there's there's some genuine you know electoral opportunities there There were a lot of non-voters, new voters, who came to the polls for Justin Trudeau. And clearly, Aaron O'Toole is trying to tap into those voters with the same type of Trump speech on the anti-elite stuff. And what we saw in the last presidential election was Trump was able to bring in millions of new voters that had not cast a ballot for him in the previous election. Is it harder to convince people to vote or is it harder to convert people from where they have previously placed their ballot? I think it would depend on the election. For, for Trump, um, there were few people that he was, I would say, converting. His, his strategy on both elections were bring out new voters. Um, getting someone to vote that has never voted before is very, very challenging. And I think that uh, unless you're a candidate like Trump, who, 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 who is a populist and who, will, who seemingly has no strategy except what he has in his head on a given day as to what he is going to say, um, it's very hard. Uh, it's very hard. And I think that unless you're an anomaly and tr- listen, Trudeau was is the only true celebrity politician that we have ever had in Canada. He's, you know, it's, you know, his dad was the closest thing prior and he is, he is now. So, um, it, you know, if I'm Aaron O'Toole, I am still trying to find a path uh, to, to talk to those suburban voters who voted for us in 08, uh, massive numbers in 2011. And in the last two elections, uh, I looked more at the liberals. So in 2011, Mm -hmm. 
you had a liberal party that was in complete disarray. You had a lot of liberals that decided to vote for the NDP and a lot of liberal voters who decided they really did not want an NDP government and voted for the conservatives. We now have a NDP at 15% in the polls. Clearly, they're not going to help you split the vote. Those suburban yeah. soccer mothers that um, Aaron O'Toole has been clear he wants to win in the suburbs, and he's talked about uh, bringing forward a solid environmental plan that would appeal to people for whom maybe it's not the top issue, but they at least want to know that the prime minister cares about the environment. Does that not also pose a risk? Like I think about the solid conservative voters in the prairies, in Alberta, some union members who work on pipelines who might feel like an environmental plan rubs against their own interest. And then now you have the Maxime Bernier party, the Maverick party. Is the Are these two political formation a threat at all to Aaron O'Toole or can he just charge ahead with his plan to court the suburbs? There's a risk for sure. And I don't think there's any, any, you know, anybody will deny that. I think the risk becomes greater if people look at Erno two and think mm, he's not going to win. You know, I think that the biggest, the biggest way to hold a coalition like that together is to be seen as on, on the path to defeating Justin Trudeau. It has to be a game of addition for Erno two. Like there's, he needs the voters he has, and then he needs to add more on top. And, you know, I think as long as, especially in the West, they see that happening, there's going to be some license for him to, uh, to do some things that he has to do. But if it looks like it's, you know, we're headed towards another election, we're going to come up short. I think there's a big risk of the, of the coalition fracturing in the West. Yeah, I think that it's something they're going to have to, uh, to pay attention to. I don't think uh, right now that, that, that you've seen um, uh, them have any electoral uh, uh, success. The Maverick Party, obviously, uh, haven't, haven't done anything. Bernier has, has, you know, consistently lost. Uh, but that being said, you know, uh, the PC Party of Canada dismissed the Reform Party for two elections and, and you know, it, and, and, it, and it can happen very quick. So to Dennis's point, I don't think they should dismiss. Uh, but right now, I don't see it being a problem for them in the short term. One, one front I'm, I'm quite interested on in the next campaign is, is just as Trump was able to bring out people to his rallies to build energy and enthusiasm, that is a key part of, of Trudeau's campaign strategy. I mean, like, mm -hmm. you know, two, there's so much stuff and staging, you had two airplanes going around the country. So this is, this is a campaign sort of built around image and momentum. And it was, you know, it was both times for Trudeau. And so I'm, I'm interested to see, I mean, that you can, you can imagine an Aaron O'Toole and, and how he would react to this type of campaign. I mean, I think he's, he's suited for, for this, you know, for Trudeau, it's how does he find a way to capture some of that energy and without the big crowds, without the music pumping and, and the backdrops and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it can actually be a bit of a level setter for, uh, for somebody like Aaron O'Toole if he, uh, uh, you know, if he can find a way to get his message out there. For the campaign. But up the until campaign, the campaign, yeah. like to me, what I find um, interesting watching the House of Commons, as I, I do and most Canadians don't, um, is that <laughs> the messages have been about sometimes they're contradictory. Like the Conservative Party stands up and says they want more spending for small businesses. They, were, they want or support uh, the Liberals' um, desire to spend more in direct spending to individuals. And yet at the same time, they're criticizing the large deficits and saying that this is outrageous and it's not responsible, that they support some deficits, but not these large deficits. That to me, in you know, sometimes yesterday we had uh, the, the call between the prime minister and the leaders of the opposition and Mr. O'Toole came out and released some of his commentary and it read some suggestions positive suggestions, I think, but also a bit like an armchair quarterback. I mean, there's nothing he can really do. Does that not, like that has to pose a challenge and you can't continue to just ask about liberal ethics and, and China. Well, this is the interesting thing. We're starting to see a switch from all politicians and, and Justin Trudeau, because of, it's all about tone and tenor. Uh, Justin Trudeau literally probably for the last two weeks uh, takes a shot at either Premier Kenny or Premier Ford in his remarks um, uh, every day. Um, so I think that uh, I think you're seeing the start of the finger pointing with COVID because uh, six to eight months ago, people were willing to give all politicians the benefit of the of the doubt. No one really uh, no one really knew what was going on. Everyone was kind of navigating uh, things together. Everything was new. Um, that's not so anymore. People are more, as Dennis said, they're more engaged on this. Everyone also knows 
more about the um, ramifications of COVID and people are starting to feel it more. And so I think that what you're seeing now, I think what you think what you're seeing now is the start of the finger pointing. I think that's actually can be a benefit for O'Toole if, if they can flip this on, if they can flip then on the liberals, because you have the bill, the, um, the rent subsidy bill, for example, mm -hmm. Christopher himself admitted it. They missed, they miswrote it. I, I saw with the we scandal, that was the start mm -hmm. of sort of a return as, as politics to, to normal. I mean, there was a moment, I mean, I, you're talking to Jenny and I here, we're both, you know, I get hardcore conservatives basically. And, and when the, when the pandemic was first hitting, I mean, I was rooting for every, everybody's success. I don't care whether you're an NDP, a, a liberal, whatever. I mean, we wanted the country to do well and, and get over this thing as soon as possible. And, you know, that sort of window of goodwill, um, I think is, is smaller today than it's, it's been before as politics has returned to, you know, what politics normally is. Let me end by asking you what you think he needs to do in the next 100 days. Jenny thinks there's going to be a spring election. Uh, what's on the, the to-do list for Aaron O'Toole? I, I think if you divide it into two things, there's the, there's the internal side of things. He's got to get ready for a campaign. And how do you find a way to sort of reinvent campaigning both for the coronavirus, but also for the, for the 2020s? What does your platform look like? What, is, what are your announcements? What is your advertising strategy? All of those things. So really getting ready internally. And then I, you know, I think externally, it's it's more of what he's been doing. That you know, he's he's like the boys. It's it's a positive image around the party, building on on that. But also going out, we talked a bit here about about the working class and, and union voters. What are the other groups out there that he can that he can go after and introduce himself to in this in this period over the next or a couple months here and until we're likely into a campaign. So I think there's the internal preparation side, but externally, it's it's you know. Start fishing. Go out there and and see and see who's who's open to uh, who's open to joining you. Yeah, I agree. It's the logistically. It's uh, logistically. They, they, they uh, and I'm sure they're already working on it. Um, they've got to continue doing what uh, what they're doing uh, there. And in terms of messaging, it's it's things change rapidly at at regular times. This is even more. And so, um, as Dennis knows, uh, like within a month of winning the 2011 campaign. Our team had already started with our internal narrative documents and what have you, and there, there's there's an evolution of, of of documents. The the documents that you start with are are much different than than what you end with, and it's because everything evolves. And I think in the next six to eight months, things are going to evolve at a like a rapid rapid pace. And so this is something that the team is going to have to be disciplined in doing. That you know where Dennis and I might have in a majority government met once a month or once every two months. This is something that there is going to have to be a team of people that are almost on a weekly basis figuring out where they are in terms of uh, the issues to, 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 to echo on what Dennis said, to attract to voters that they need to, to win back or to reach to win the next election. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your insights. You're both very good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. Well, it was fun. Have a good weekend, guys. Thanks. You yeah. too. Stay Thanks. safe. Yeah, you Thanks so much. Bye. Jenny Byrne was Stephen Harper's campaign manager in 2011 when the Conservatives won a majority government. She also served as his deputy chief of staff and was a campaign manager in 2015. She's now the CEO of Jenny Burns and Associate, a public affairs consulting firm. Dennis Matthews also worked for Stephen Harper in the Prime Minister's office. He also served as an advertising advisor for Doug Ford prior to the PC leader winning the Premiership of Ontario. He is the vice president of marketing and communications at Enterprise, a strategic marketing firm. Here's another perspective from inside the Conservative tent, but not from Party Insiders, on O'Toole's first 100 days and the issues he's championed loudly so far. Everything carried out by the Chinese Communist Party is deliberate and planned. From their lobbying campaign of Western politicians to secure that WTO admission, to their efforts at disrupting our industries by dumping state-subsidized cheap commodities and ignoring intellectual property laws. Chinese agents threatening Canadians on our soil, and all this Prime Minister has to say is it's inappropriate. I prefer more to work with China. Good for our country. Eric Wynn. And uh, founder of Chinese Canadian Conservative Association. I was a past president. Now I'm the national executive secretary of CCCA. Personally, I'm from Taiwan and Singapore. So I'm not close with China, Chinese government, but China is 
more power now, and economic-wise, uh, second of the world next to U.S. So we need to work together. Business-wise, we need to work together with China, the way I see it. No, against it. Make friends with everybody. Do you feel then that Mr. O'Toole's stance on China is counterproductive? Mainland China coming more and more. In our Chinese group, most originally mostly from Hong Kong. The next one is from South Asia, Southeast Asia, and the Taiwan. But now more and more people from China. So if you want to win the votes, you want to win the votes in order to become a prime minister, you need Chinese votes too. Besides uh, work with China, the rest are doing very well. If he wants to become a, a prime minister, he has to go out, I mean, reach out to all the ethnic groups too. But that people become more and more important too. Uh, uh, make sure you tell, <laughs> tell our leader uh, outreach to ethnic groups too. I mean, do more. <laughs> I will pass along the message. All right. Thank you. Mr. Speaker, experts are raising alarms about this government's plan to distribute a COVID vaccine. We've signed deals that mean other nations, like the United States, will receive millions of doses before a single Canadian does. We've been working since the summer on signing deals with a record number of companies around the world to ensure that wherever or however someone uh, gets the right vaccine, it will be available in Canada. Hi, my name is Catherine Swift. I was the uh, president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, uh, a small business advocacy organization for uh, almost 30 years and retired from there a few years ago. But I did work with Aaron O'Toole in a number of capacities and to this day uh, am in touch with Aaron and uh, exchanging views and interest and uh, sometimes giving him some advice on policy. And I happened to be hanging out at my cottage in the Halliburton Highlands in Ontario uh, during this pandemic. I know Aaron quite well. I, uh, when I was head of CFIB, I did work with Aaron in the Harper government uh, on a number of issues over the years. And um, I think he's probably done as as good a job as he could under difficult circumstances. Uh, let's face it, this whole COVID crisis is overwhelming every other news item, totally understandably so. And so it's pretty tough for a guy who did not have a high public profile prior to being uh, elected as head of the Conservative Party. It's pretty tough for him to, you know, establish himself in such circumstances when normally I think it would be a lot more straightforward. So, you know, to his credit, uh, he's he's certainly pursued quite an active social media presence, which in this day and age, especially in the COVID world where, you know, in-person in meetings and so on are, are very limited if, if they happen at all. Um, I think that was a smart move to promote that. I think he's he's worked to he's worked to make himself known as a person, which I think in his case he did not have a high profile. So I think that was a very high priority, and so he, he has worked on that. He's also carved out a few issues that he's he's wanting to take a particular stand on and put forward to the Trudeau government to try to put their feet to the fire. Obviously, his goal is to is to enlarge his tent. Uh, for such a long time in Canada, the Conservatives are successful when um, the NDP manages to split the vote. What he is, 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 I would think, trying to do is to, you know, carve out part of those voters. Uh, that are in the organized labor sort of uh, tent for uh, conservatives. I think it's a wise choice. It'll be a challenge, however, because I don't think he'll ever win over the union leaders. The union leaders, especially in this day and age, the vast majority of union members work for government. They're no longer the the classic sort of industrial union. You know, that's not that, that that's not the current reality. Over sixty percent of the unionized employees in Canada are government employees. So it's very disproportionately heavily biased for those government employees. And let, I, I can't believe a conservative uh, leader will ever win them over because they want big and bigger, bigger government. 
uh, at the expense, of course, of the rest of us who pay the taxes for government. So uh, it's an uphill battle right now. And again, he has he has the COVID smokescreen over everything he does. He has a Liberal Party that is using a fire hose with our tax dollars and spraying them all over the place. Uh, and a lot of people don't mind that happening. They don't. They, they're they're taking a short term perspective. They're not realizing, hey, this is my money that I'm going to have to pay back down the road. But um, he's got a he's got a lot of challenges right now because of the particular circumstances we're in. And um, so far, I think he's done pretty well in in balancing off all the different competing interests. Those were the voices of Catherine Swift and Eric Wen. Well, that's our show. Erin O'Toole declined our interview request this week. His office said he may speak with us in the new year. Fingers crossed. I don't know. Am I that scary? We always love, really we do, we love to hear from you. Write to us. I'm Althea Raj, that's A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. Subscribe to follow up on whatever podcast app you use to get our latest episodes. This show was produced by myself and our terrific Ottawa reporter, Zian Lum. This week, our wonderful technical producers were Nicole Edwards and Michal Stein. I'm Althea Raj. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and see you soon.